Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNode, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. I'm Elliot Zagman, and with me is a man who is in Tianjin for the day. He has left his home in Beijing's uh, central business district so that he can remain safe and his skin can be preserved so as not to be impacted and burned off by the radiance of the Chinese dream. It's James Hall. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the reasons I'm actually in Tianjin is uh, mm-hmm. obviously my I have family here. But another reason is that the the because of the parade, my compound where I live is completely closed off. You can't leave if you're in there. And if you want to go in, you can't go in for about 24 hours. So, yeah, I figured maybe best to get out and not be stuck there. I have I was stuck outside uh, about a week ago when they were doing some of the rehearsals. But anyway, that's totally not what our cast is about. Did, did you watch the parade at all? I did, and we. I mean, the the tanks park in a parking lot behind our apartment, so we can see the tanks coming in, and it's you know they're like cleaning them off and. You know, the guys like jumping around on top of them. It's pretty cool. Mm-hmm. But I did watch the parade today uh, on TV. I think it's a little better on TV. You get a better view. But anyway. Yeah. So, we, we, well, first of all, we're going to be joined by Jane Lee, the China Tech reporter from for Quartz or a China Tech reporter for Quartz. Uh, she's going to talk about kind of the, the, the bubble bursting, I guess. We've talked about this a few different times, but just about specifically, uh, you know, who's having trouble with funding and kind of where where the uh, the pain is being felt right now in China's tech world, but also where what sectors are being are proving to be a little bit more resilient. Uh, but before that, we're going to talk about a few things in the news. One is the delisting possibilities that we've seen coming from uh, some chatter coming from the Trump administration, kind of some back and forth on this. Also, uh, we're going to talk about FTSE, ex- the delayed inclusion. You, you'll tell me more about this later. Yeah. Uh, 36KR's IPO. And also we're, we're going to look at EV sales. Uh, but first, should we say our disclaimer? Yeah, so everything, nothing we say here is investment <laughs> advice. Uh, do your own research. Do your own homework. This is entertainment. Yeah, investing is risky. Techno.com slash newsletters for your daily dose of China Tech. Uh, and also be sure to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Five stars, please, or write us a nice review. Uh, it really helps other people find us on uh, on those platforms. Also, follow me on Twitter at Elliot Zagman, E-L-L-I-O-T-T-Z-A-A-G-M-A-N, and James at James Hull X, J-A-M-E-S-H-U-L-L-X. Okay, now let's get to what people listen for. Are Chinese companies going to have to delist from U.S. stock exchanges, James? I mean, my guess is uh, not not right away, not right now. I mean, that's not on, on the, it seems like the administration or at least the treasury side has uh, said that this is not a consideration. There were some reports, I think Bloomberg might have broke it, I'm not really sure. Uh, but that piece that Bloomberg wrote quoted, unnamed sources within the administration. And so we're not really sure kind of what's going on here, but we have talked about this before. It's not the first time we've heard about it. We've heard uh, Steve Bannon talk about it. We've heard, uh, what's his name? Mark Cuban. Marco Rubio. Marco Rubio wrote that. that, Yeah. Marco Rubio wrote that piece for Wall Street Journal, right? That op-ed about it. That's right. So it has been in, in, there's, you know, chatter about it, whether it happens or not, we'll have to see. My kind of take, which you know could be wrong, but my guess is that if this is something that actually happens, it won't be like you wake up the next day and every every company has to delist. It'll take quite a lot of time. I mean, at least I mean a couple of years to maybe three years. Australia was they did something sort of similar, but they didn't. It wasn't like directly aimed at Chinese companies. But what they did was they increased their their listing requirements. And then over time, companies just didn't want to have to deal with that. So they just voluntarily delisted. So if that's what the U.S. wants to do, I mean, it's completely in the control of the SEC if they want to want to do something like that. Yeah, I would be astonished if uh, they actually, you know, went through with this in to the degree that, you know, people are are, are talking of them doing it. It seems to me like the most likely scenario is just going to be that maybe 
like they'll put up some sort of barriers, maybe some sort of higher uh, higher requirements or something like that. But I would just would be so so surprised if if they were able to push something like that through, just because it, there would be so much pushback. You know, it, I, it, like any kind of any time that they want to have financial regulation in the U.S., there's a ton of pushback. And considering how many how many uh, banks and just how many how many interest groups there are that that profit off this, I just would be so surprised if they actually did this and and forced some of these companies to delist. But but who knows? Yeah. Should we move on to the FTSE yeah. bond inclusion? Yeah, yeah. You know more about this than me. Explain it. <laughs> I still don't quite get okay, it. Okay, so. Basically, there are there are several bond indexes uh, that are run by FTSE run one runs one uh, Bloomberg runs one. There's there's others, and you know big bond indexes, big passive sort of ETF type type things. They follow these these indexes, and so like Vanguard will I think follows Bloomberg and FTSE. But supposedly this would have if they had done the increased the inclusion or the market accessibility rating. It would have uh, brought in about 150 billion dollars to China, and so mm. yeah, they, they actually issued a little bit of a statement saying that you know improvements to secondary market liquidity and increased flexibility in foreign exchange execution and the settlement of transactions are kind of what they want to see before they upgrade China's market accessibility rating, which is actually the thing that determines index inclusion. So. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe maybe they do it next year or maybe the year after. China is doing, I mean, they just announced, I think today, that PayPal is going to be, going to have foreign digital payment status in, in China, which is kind of interesting. But anyway, the opening up is, you know, it takes a while. They don't, they tend to do it on their own time, <laughs> but it is, it is happening. I, I roll my eyes at that. Largely because it's something that it's one of these things where, you know, for so many of these areas, you know, of China's opening up, like they open up in ways that will benefit them. <laughs> and if they don't benefit them directly, they, they don't do it. Right. So there's was all this push. There was all this kind of kind of dragging their feet for basically what, 10 years about kind of opening up to, you know, U.S. financial services, uh, you know, payments platforms like, um, you know, payments providers like like Visa, MasterCard, et cetera, et cetera. And they never really did. And then now that their digital payment ecosystem has taken off with Alipay and, and WeChat Pay and no one, has, there's not really that much incentive to use something like PayPal. Now they're finally open and, 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 and in. But if you are a foreigner, right, you, you go to China and everything is, you know, it's mobile payments everywhere. And if you can't, if, if you don't have WeChat Pay and you don't have a Chinese bank account, you know, how do you use, you know, Alipay or WeChat Pay? It's, it can be quite difficult. So it's a, it, that's a tricky thing. And I think that by, by opening up to, to PayPal, that is something that, you know, a lot of these people that are coming, these foreign visitors to China, it's going to make it a little bit more easier. That's at least you know what I think when I see that. I mean, one one thing I'd add is that I don't you know Visa and Mastercard came in early and they sort of took the U.S. Uh, digital payment model and kind of brought it into China. I don't think we'd see the likes of Alipay and WeChat Pay kind of getting getting born the way or innovated you know uh, the way they have. So there are I mean on the one hand you know you want you wanted to have open markets, but on the other hand, like having kind of a blank slate does allow a lot of innovation. I think. Yeah, it's the apex, the the apex predator in the divergent ecosystem, right? So if you have, if you take one species and you put it in one area where there is a dominant predator, right? Then they then they will have limitations to their evolution. Where and then if you put them in another area where there is none, right? They will evolve into a, a bigger or stronger species, right? And that's that's actually it's that's actually a really interesting thing that that I've trend that I've noticed. Um, I, I would like to know who's written about this when it comes to kind of the way in which like so you see with the U.S. like you had these certain digital platforms, you know, for example, like Facebook. That kind of grew, kind of achieved this dominance before any social network did uh, anywhere else, 
right? But then they they also kind of were slower with it with their innovation process once they achieved the dominance, right? China they blocked Facebook, and then they because it was later on they were able to these these companies were able to iterate from Facebook, but then also kind of in the, in competing with each other they also kind of move forward into some of that space so they can kind of innovate past that stage where Facebook kind of stalls. Uh, as well, you know, in, incorporating things like mobile payments uh, and others, uh, and then now you're seeing, in some ways, that is a, that is stalled a bit in China as the big players kind of beca- have become established already. And then if you look at Southeast Asia or India or these other developing areas, you're seeing kind of that there's other different ways that some of these super apps are innovating. For example, like Grab or, or Gojek. It's, it's quite interesting, but yeah, it's it's it is something that it's. By having a some form of kind of like protective regime, it allows them to um, have you know innovate and, and grow their own their own companies. And I think it's, that's kind of a working that out is one of the big questions about kind of the future of free trade, right? Because if we if we agree that that free trade is in general a good thing, right? You know how how do you create kind of a global free trade you know set of norms and rules that you know, don't encourage people to block countries to just block off all foreign competition, but also allows them to have that space to kind of grow as well within their own digital environment. So, but that's a bigger question than this podcast. <laughs> I was I was reading uh, Michael Pettis's book, The Great Rebalancing, and he at the end he's got a whole bunch of uh, kind of what do you, you know expectations of what do you think is going to happen, and one of the, he touches on that. Maybe we can talk about this later. Anyway, let's move on to the next topic yeah, before we go so, too long here. So this, this this next one is one that's a little interesting to me. 36KR has announced that they will be um, looking to raise uh, around $100 million in a U.S. IPO. 36KR is a company that I have written for dozens of times. I've, I've done a lot of work with them. They're an interesting company. I'm going to try to explain them. They're, they're considered to be kind of similar to TechCrunch, like China's TechCrunch, but not quite. So on the front end... Uh, if I misspeak here, someone's going to just just fillet me, flay, not fillet, not fillet me. They um they on the front end they're a media company, right? But they're kind of a they they do like tech media, they do kind of tech crunch type stuff, right? They they produce articles, but it's 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 China and it's also uh you know they're a for profit business. They they don't have. Their, their, most of their content is not subscription. So also a lot of it is kind of when there's like soft, soft articles, right? So a lot of it's kind of like if you're a PR, it's, it's can be easier to get your, get your kind of puff pieces, uh, in there. So, but if you are just trying to keep up with like the, the basic day to day of China's tech ecosystem, they're, they're a good, a good platform for that. But then on the back end, because they, they attract kind of a usership, a user base through the media side, on the back end is where they make more of their money. So they have kind of subscription services when it comes to more kind of data and analytics stuff. They have consulting services. And this is a bigger question that I've had about the company is that, you know, when I spoke with, uh, with a number of their executives last year, one of the the way in which they were often sharing about the future of the company was about this idea of like a KR space, something like a basically a, a WeWork model. And as we've seen, kind of WeWork the the flaws uh, of WeWork's business model, it, it seems as though like a thirty six KR probably is not wanting to really highlight that part of their their business model and try to focus more on the uh, kind of the data and the analytics and the um the consulting side of things but um as far as i haven't read read over you know their their numbers so i don't really know exactly how they're doing but um they're definitely an interesting company to follow and maybe we can, when they ipo we can have another guest on to talk about it do you read anything of theirs yeah they i'm reading a little bit of their <laughs> f1 which is their uh, so they had like last year about 43.5 million US in revenue. And it looks like, yeah, that's mostly coming from they have online advertising, they have subscriptions, they have institutional investor subscriptions, enterprise subscriptions, individual subscriptions, consulting, as you said, uh, integrated marketing, advertising. Yeah, so this it's, looks interesting. We should definitely, I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be a smaller company. Um, but yeah, we can we can take. Yeah, it I mean, it's there. It's definitely uh, 
very valuable. I read their, I love their, uh, some of their stuff is, is great. I was reading a, just recently something that talked about Billy Billy a little bit and how difficult gaming, like there was someone at Billy Billy talking about how tough gaming is and how difficult the, uh, the requirements from the, the gamers have gotten. And I think he likened it to like kind of the, being at the industrial stage mm. of gaming, whereas like before maybe it's more artistic and, you know, more creative, but now it's like you're turning these things out and you, you throw different monetization models on top, you know, whether you're opening loot boxes or you're buying the game or you're subscribing or. Well, speaking of monetization models, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the interesting thing to take away of 36KR is that like media, being a media company has, is, is nightmarish. I mean, it's, it's difficult anywhere. It's especially difficult in China, right? Because there's one, there's not, they don't, the, the kind of business models are not as established, but also, you know, there's the whole other kind of censorship stuff to deal with. And, and that stuff is always super tricky, but they have done a very good job of one of raising capital. They're backed by Alibaba. But in addition to that, they've done a, a very good job of trying to just throw spaghetti up against a wall and see what works as far as, you know, building a business model around around a media company. And I think when it comes to, I mean, there's plenty of, of criticism that you could have them about kind of the, the conflicts of interest that, that that builds. But they, what has been admirable from, from, from my perspective, when I look at them, is that they they have tried a lot of things. They're willing to you know take risks, and they're willing to 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 really find a way to make this business model work. So they're definitely an interesting company, and they're worth keeping an eye on. Let's move on to uh, like a, a less positive story. Um, and before we move on to more less positive stuff with our interview with Jane, but uh, EV sales are now to say it was the the quarter was that it was the first time we saw a dip. In actual EV sales, we've seen uh, auto sales in China. Yeah, yeah. So this is unit sales. EV unit sales changed from a year ago, uh, negative, whereas they've been pretty hugely positive. And this is what everyone's pointing to is uh, the decline in the electric EV, like pure EV uh, subsidies. The plug-in hybrids have also, their subsidies have also dropped, but they're much lower than the pure EV. So, uh yeah, this is definitely impacting EV sales. I mean, auto sales we've talked about, I think, yeah. a few times on the podcast. Those have been down like basically all year. I think for the entire time we've had the podcast. Yeah, that's kind of a theme. <laughs> and the 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 kind of the, the way in which this is if you're a retail investor, portfolio manager, the way in which this is probably most evident is, uh, or one of the ways in which this is most evident is through the stock of NEO, which is not now, I believe it IPO'd at six or seven US dollars a share. I'll have to look at this, but now it's trading at under two. It's, it is not doing well. And we're hearing kind of a lot of problems, a lot of issues kind of coming out of the company just in recent, uh, in recent days. A lot of staff leaving. Yeah. They, they IPO'd just a little. Let me see what I got here. Yeah, they IPO'd around at 660, and now they're, that, and that was about almost exactly a year ago. No, they IPO'd at 10, almost $10. There we go. Yeah. And then now they're trading at less than two. Yeah. And they've, they've been up and down, but they've been down a lot more than up. And, um, yeah, they're, they're just, they're having a rough time. And if, when it comes to, you know, EVs in China, they were kind of the gold standard. They were supposed to be the Tesla rival, but they're really like falling victim to this kind of, um, you know, confluence of, of a number of different, um, problems that are just bigger trends, right? One being that, you know, EVs are, are, it's super hard to, as, as we've seen with Tesla, you know, to, to, to really do well at this business. You know, it's, it's not an easy, it's not like making an app or anything like that. But then in addition to that, right, we've seen these subsidies kind of get removed in China. Um, we kind of saw, we've seen EVs kind of flood the market, but then also we just see auto sales dropping and falling off in China. And then in addition to that, they, they have this, this, they require a very long runway and it's, it's harder and harder to raise money. So, um, yeah, it's, things are not very good for them and for, for most companies in China's EV space right now. Anyways, are, are we ready to go to our interview with Jane Lee? I, I think so. Yeah. All right. Let's welcome, uh, Jane Lee, China tech reporter for Quartz. Joining us today is Jane Lee. Jane Lee is a China tech reporter for Quartz. Jane, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So, so you have 
written, uh, you wrote a, a few months ago, I think in July, about kind of this possibility of the the tech bubble bursting in China. At this point, I mean, my question about this is: is has it already burst? Like the investments is 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 down. Is, are are we are we past the worst of it already? What do you think about that? Right. Yeah. I think actually that's the million dollar question, right? Everyone has been asking. I mean, when I was chatting with investors or just startups that really wanted to raise funding, everyone is kind of panicking. I mean, in China market. So I don't think we're looking at a dot-com bubble style burst yet because nothing, I don't think they're going to be an overnight burst and the valuation is going to plunge significantly. I don't think that's going to happen soon, at least not this year. But also we're seeing numbers coming out from China that's looking really bad. So I'd like to share some of the data with our listeners. So first set of data, I would say, so basically venture capital deals in greater China, uh, including Hong Kong and Taiwan, plunged both in terms of volume and value in the first half of the year. So according to Precon, um, there were only 1,375 deals closed during the first half of the year compared with almost 2,600 a year ago. Wow. And not only wow. the volume uh, has plunged and the value has plunged significantly as well. So the value in the first half of this year, the VC deals, uh, the value were 19.9 billion US dollars. However, that the figure was 59.2 billion in the same period last year. So when you look at numbers like this, everyone is really feeling, we've been talking about the winter, to be honest. Uh, everyone was talking about the winter is coming ever since, I would say, 2017, if you search yeah. the headlines in Chinese, especially Chinese media, they're actually very sensitive about those things because they talk with the VCs and startups all the time. So uh, ever since 2017, we were seeing headlines like winter is coming. But this year, I would say, we're really seeing the winter is coming. And uh, when I was talking with the investors... here. Yeah. So... Uh, the, the, night, the night king has, has crossed the wall. Exactly. So while I think there's not going to be that kind of panic we've seen like 30 years ago in the U.S. Uh, under the dot-com style bubble... Uh, when, when you when you mm. when you burst, but I do think the process in China is going to be much more gradual. For the the bubble will burst eventually because it's a bubble, so it has to burst at some point. Mm. But then the the process can stretch on for like two or even three years, and it's going to be extremely painful because it's coupled with the very slow the slowing Chinese economy, and there are going to be huge layoffs. To be honest, and then. With that, having said that, I do think there is a diversification that we need to note. So on the one hand, uh, the smaller startups, especially those at their initial stage, like maybe startups and their first or second years, they're going to suffer much more than those later stage companies. And that's the natural result of investors wanting to put money, only put money into those later stage giants like Biden's mm. um, and financial, we don't even have to talk about that. It's so huge now. And um, as well as less less known quite show, the video app, which is also looking, uh, trying to seek for listing overseas. So all those industry giants, they are going to keep raising money and they are, their valuations are rising as well. So by dance, mm-hmm. everyone knows this over, over 75 billion US dollars. And quite show has already crossed 25 billion US dollars valuation, which is quite huge, I would say. Mm. So the diversification, I think, between the gap between the two types of company, the big ones and small ones, I do think is going to be more obvious, uh, obvious going forward. So I would say the bubble is more likely to burst in the, uh, in the lower bottom, in the lower, yeah, for the smaller startups. They're going to suffer more pains. So just to add in here, I think um, I think you're right. I think you know, first of all, the big difference is with the internet bubble uh, in the U.S. The dot com bubble. I mean, those were listed companies that were listing very early and sort of chasing, you know, um, eyeballs and stories. You know, basically a lot of story stocks and basically looking for clicks and whatever you call that eyeballs now. I guess. And with these companies in, in China, the, they're not listed. It's harder to have such a fast markdown of asset, of values. I think very recently we've seen, and I don't want to bring it up and like go deep into it, but, cause everyone's done that already. But 
in terms of like speed of decline of valuation in a private market, WeWork is probably the 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 new right. uh, example of that. So it it can happen fast, I guess. But but if they weren't trying to do an IPO, if they didn't file an S one with all that information in there. They never would have had this big write down, or not even a write down, but this big markdown in uh, their valuation. So, yeah, this can definitely take a long time in the private markets for something to happen. And I agree that the smaller companies, the smaller, newer, you know, startups tend, I mean, a lot of these companies have a hard time getting to cash flow, like even just having. You know, cash flowing at like a little bit, not not necessarily cash flow positive. Um, so if you have cash flowing, and even though you're you have negative cash flow, that's that's you tend to be like kind of a little bit later stage. Mm. You've developed your product already. You've, you've you don't have technology risk. You have users that are starting to use it. Maybe they're paying for it. Maybe you're doing advertising. You know, so like those companies are going to be able to potentially raise money. Maybe. Because they're going to have to look at their competitors, and if their competitors are farther along than them, they're going to raise money. And so, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be tough. It's, I mean, the 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 spigot of capital is not flowing as it used to be. I think that's the. It, it makes me think about um, you know about I, I've noticed right around um, kind of summer of last year was kind of the peak of, of I think this where you'd see like okay you get a new round of private financing. And these companies would get a very, very loudly boast about their valuation, right? So in the headline, it would be, you know, DD gets a new, another round and now they're valued at 40 billion or, or ByteDance gets another round or et cetera, et cetera. Now you don't, you hear, oh, they got another round of private financing, but they never say what it's valued at anymore. <laughs> uh, and I think this is because uh, it, it it might not be valued as much as it, as it used to be. So, Jane, do you think that that this is is something that we could point the finger at when it comes to, um, or we could point the finger at the trade war when it comes to this? Is this a U.S. China thing, or is it something something bigger or different? I think actually, as for people in the media, including myself, it's really convenient to blame the trade war because every time you write a headline, you just say uh, valuations plunge amid the trade war. Because that's convenient, but I think the re- reasons are deeper than that. Because um, while trade war definitely is a major factor and play here, because it's everyone knows it's just adding uncertainty to the public markets and private markets, and no one, some of the investors, especially in the biotech, in the biotech field I talked with before, they were really worried if they can continue uh, investing in U.S. biotech company since there has been so much money flowed into from China uh, into U.S. biotech startups as well as sorry Chinese biotech companies are trying to collaborate with U.S. biotech firm. So I think people are really worried about the uncertainties that's been brought about by the trade war. But on the other hand, I would say there is a deeper reason than that. So one of the major reasons I would say is the drying up in on the renminbi side. So people probably the US dollar funds keep raising money. That's that will grab more attention whenever a US dollar fund closed in China. Especially like Hill House or all the other big mm. names when they're closing really huge amount of uh, funds. But on the other hand, I mean oh, sorry, go ahead. So like R and B funds, like state directed funds even? It, uh, it, it does seem like so yeah, keep going. Right. So there are actually uh I would say I can't remember the exact number, but there are thousands of renminbi funds in China, right? So they are a mixture. Mm. So like the state we call them state guidance funds. Like they are the the major driving force of the renminbi uh fundraising thing. They have the most money, but also they have lots of restrictions. They usually so it usually works like this. So the state guidance funds uh set up by local governments. They will go to a GP, a private GP, and they will tell the GP to say, we want to put 30% of our whole capital into you. But then you have to focus on certain sectors and then you have to raise the rest of the rest of the money by yourself from the market, from other um, private investors. But also we would want you to stick with the sectors or stick, even stick with the companies we want you to invest in because we are, we have to, 
serves interests of the nation. To put it very uh straightforwardly, so you have to put money into either like biotech or chip or semiconductors. So I think um so yeah that so state guidance funds they actually have many restri- restrictions for GPs. So so on the other hand, we're saying like Jamin B GPs. In addition to the state guidance funds, we still have lots of like smaller GPs that are trying to raise RMB funds to put into local companies. And the problem comes when China issued a new regulation on wealth management products last year. Uh, I think around July last year, China has issued a new regulation to say uh, that banks basically they can't really put money in, they can't really continue in putting money they got from the wealth management products uh, into the GPs. So lots of people probably didn't know, but Chinese banks, they are, they used to be putting money, the process they got from selling wealth management products to high net worth individuals into GPs, I mean, BGPs. And now mm. they can't really do that because... Jane. Sorry, go ahead. Just want to clarify. So you're saying that the banks were selling wealth management products to invest in in the GPs or as in, as LPs in the funds because the GP tends to be the is the general partner usually the manager the group that sets up the the fund whereas the LP is like the limited partner they're the investor in the in the fund yeah so banks they are they act like L, uh, the LPs in the in the GP that they put money into but they got so this is a big complicated. So basically the banks, they get the money from high net worth individuals, right? Because they sell wealth management products to the high net worth individuals. And then, so they, they play the role as GP LPs to pull the money, the process they get from the products into the GPs. So they kind of like helping the highest worth individuals who are the real LPs behind the scene to pull money into the GPs. Do I make, so does that sound clear? Yeah, I, I mean, it just sounds like you're saying that they're investing in the general partner, whereas like the fund would be, you know, the fund's a partnership. The general partner is usually the one that's managing it, and the limited partners that come in oh, yeah. have limited liability. They're they're the ones that are investing in the fund. I mean, all three, all both of those invest in the fund typically. But so yeah, I I, I think yeah, I see the problem here. So what I meant was actually they putting money into the funds themselves, not into the GPs. Not into right. the partners okay. themselves, yeah. So that okay. should be clear then. All right. And I'll, can I just say a thing? You also mentioned the, um, forget what you called them, the guidance fund, the Indao Jijin. Those are, yeah, there, there are many different kinds of Indao Jijin, um, these guidance, state guidance funds. Some are, you know, quite onerous, uh, and some are not. But yeah, yeah, anyway. Um, so, so, so I guess this is this, the, the broader trend here would be, you know, we've talked about this before on the podcast, the, whether or not you want to use the term deleveraging or kind of risk management. What, what was, what did Andrew Polk use? What was the term that he used? Where, you know, the, it's, it's not a, it, it's basically part of these steps, these measures that are being taken internally within China to kind of make sure that that capital is allocated in a way that uh, is there's less risk exposure. I guess um, I I forget I forget the term that uh, Andrew used, but yeah, I think I mean the the whole goal of all this stuff, if we just zoom out for a second, is that in in China. Typically, if there's money to be invested, it goes one place, and that's real estate. And so, the the way you don't let it go to real estate is you have to have like specific places for it, other places for it to go. And even banks have an issue with this. Like, they can, you know, loan money to a company as a bank loan. They have to be very careful that that company is not going to take that bank loan money and just go buy apartments or invest in like a real estate. Cause that's like a pretty, has been historically a pretty surefire way to make money and with very little risk. That might be changing. Obviously, you never know the future, but the, the problem is when people sit around and talk about you know, what did I do? What did you do? What did we all do? Like, let's share ideas. What has worked in the last, you know, 10, 
15, five years, where have we made money? And everybody has made more money in real estate usually than other things. <laughs> so, so it's kind of all, it's all tied. This all this ties into that. But yeah, I, yeah, I'm not sure like what is, um, I think with the way this ties in with the trade war, I'm not sure if it ties in that closely because before this trade war started, there was a deleveraging campaign that kind of got got started, you know, clamping down on shadow banks, which was a major funding source to the real estate industry. And, you know, clamping down on peer-to-peer also happened. And so, you know, uh, that just lowered the amount of capital that's kind of in in the system. Uh, and mm. well, so, but but my my question is kind of for now and for Jane too. Like, is this so? They've been clamping down on these on on P two P. They want less money going into real estate. But is is the fact that is the deflation of the the tech bubble in China, is this a result of this? Is this, does this, are these two things impacting each other? Is it, is tech a casualty of them trying to limit risks in other areas? So I, so my opinion, I, my assumption is like they are kind of like tied with each other because you talk about the clampdown on P2B, on P2Ps and lots of VC or PE mm. funds, they also get their funding from the P2P products. Uh, so that has obviously resulted in part of the drying up, at least on the renminbi side. So that was what I was mm. trying to say earlier, because the mm. drying up on the renminbi side obviously has quite, I, I would say has been one of the major reasons that's been uh, resulting in the deflation we're seeing in the tech sector. Mm. So looking at, at, at some specific sectors, I and mean, you mentioned, for example, biotech, like there's a lot of involvement between like, Chinese firms and U.S. firms when it comes to biotech, um, but what what are what are the sectors? Obviously, tech is a really, 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 really broad umbrella. What are the sectors that you think are getting hit the hardest right now, and what ones are are proving to be more resilient? So I don't have the exact numbers because like valuations, and especially it depends on how to measure one sector that's being hit the hardest, right? So. From my, from investors perspective, they would, they would look at the valuations for sure. So I would say maybe from my conversations with them, I think AI and e-commerce mm. sectors, especially those very small ones. So I would say that the two sectors have been hit quite, I probably could say they've been hit the hardest because they are the two sectors that, that attracted the most attention, I would say in the last year. And mm-hmm. then correspondingly, they've attracted lots of capital as well. So in the AI sector, we have like industry giant like since time that has kind of halted its real show, according to Bloomberg report. Uh, sorry, a report this week from Bloomberg saying they have halted their real show and delayed it. And so if even since time is delaying their real show, so I think that means the problem is pretty severe. And also we're seeing, wow. I, right. I was talking with one guy. I wouldn't say his name, but he's from a top Chinese asset manager. And the guy himself is overseeing a new economy fund that's investing in lots of Chinese unicorns. And some of them already listed. So he was saying he assumed 60 to 70% of AI companies in China are going to vanish no later than next year. So that's a very bold statement from the guy, especially given Six, he's 60 to 70% of AI companies. Yes, a startups, he means. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, so that was a very bold statement from him, but he was, he seemed to be quite firm about his assumption, especially given his heavy involvement in the sector, in the AI sector. So I feel that's pretty much if investors like him are so, they're so, um, negative about the prospect. I think that means the problem probably is pretty much quite serious now. And in terms of e-commerce, We've seen like kind of miracle like Pinduoduo that when that when listed within three years uh, into its, its establishment, but those kind of stories based uh, according to my conversations with investors are also becoming so much more difficult to achieve, and the investor sentiment toward that sector is also not positive at all because they feel the valuations are quite high flying. 
some of the companies were trying to sell themselves based on the story of Pinduoduo in the in the in、uh, in 2018 or earlier even. But now they probably couldn't continue telling the story anymore because in the face of the delisting rumor, probably from the Trump administration, that's threatening. The listing status of the Chinese tech companies, so I think it would be so much harder for the e-commerce companies to tell the story, and especially the market has pretty much been divided, shared between Alibaba, JD, and Pinduoduo. So I think the two sectors、yeah. probably would be or have already been hit the hardest, and we probably are going to see more downruns coming out from those two sectors. Yeah, it, it does seem like there was, especially when it comes to e-commerce, that. There were these two kind of main forces that were these engines behind it. One was the just the Chinese, the consumer side of the Chinese economy continuing to grow so much, right? I mean, just the the Chinese economy continuing to grow, but especially、uh, consumers, and then、uh, everything being digitized and everything going onto these platforms. But both of those seem to be past their biggest, their peak growth, I guess. So you got to wonder how much. How much can they keep going to that well? I don't know how much how much more growth there's going to be there's going to be there. But what about like uh, uh, have you have you been following kind of electric vehicles at all as well? It, it seems like there like that is one of those things where where just a year ago you know EVs and and autonomous driving was just everywhere. It was just what everyone's talking about, and now it's it is it even even the big names you know your Bytons or your.、Um, Your your neos are just just in crisis. It seems. Oh yeah, definitely. I remember I wrote about an autonomous autonomous driving company in China called Rostar. I can't because their names are so similar. So I think Rost either Rostar another very a company with very similar name went bust earlier this year. So I wrote about how that was because of their internal management struggle, like. One management,、mm. basically, one guy accused the other two executives of stealing.、Uh, sorry, the other two accused the one guy of stealing the technology of the the car making. So, I think in that sector, when I was talking with like entrepreneurs in that sector as well as investors, they were also saying、um, they think there are going to be. They still think there are going to be lots of hot. Money flowing into the sector because it seems to be obvious that you want to bet on a new technology, but also. I feel like this sector is also going to weather more uncertainties going forward. Like you mentioned, Neo that's been bleeding money. Although Neo came out to say on Thursday that they didn't lose, you know, Bloomberg said they lost fifty-seven billion U.S. dollars during the past four years. So they were like, "Oh, we didn't lose that much money, but we lost two hundred twenty billion yuan, which equals to around how much U.S. dollars?" I Have to do a conversion here, so like less than two hundred twenty billion yuan, thirty thirty something. Yeah, exactly. So that's still a huge amount of money. So actually, that's not <laughs>、wow. very.、Um, I mean, they're still bleeding money. They're just trying to say we're we're not losing that much money. So I think those sectors, like the EV sector, like you mentioned, definitely will have to. They have to deliver like more results going forward. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like for EVs, like.、Uh, The the investors got a little too excited about new technology, and the problem with EVs is that it's it's it, it exists in like the physical world, where you have to like also have charging stations and infrastructure built and all this stuff to like actually have it really work, and then you know. Everyone's competing, and you have all these different standards and everything. It's like you know, it's a giant mess. Whereas like. Technology in the internet realm, which is like the non-physical sort of world, the electrons. It's a, the electron world exactly.、Yeah. is a is a lot easier to just chase the new technology.、Uh, you're just gonna it's safer because it all it all exists in in electrons mostly, you know, digital stuff. But、yeah. So what? So what's going on? Like, what are what are VCs going to do? And like, there are a lot of companies that have done IPOs and have done, you know, fundraisings. What are they going to do with their capital? Are they going to be putting it into China? Are they going to be going out abroad and moving going out? Like, who's where's this? Like, the incremental investment going to go from some of these these VCs or from these big tech companies? So I yeah I do think 
The sounds of US dollar funds, especially uh, including some smaller VCs like CCV, they're quite new. They're still raising um, quite a large amount of US dollars. So they need to spend that capital for sure. And so I think one thing is they might keep continuing putting money into sectors that, that are more resilient in China, such as education. I was talking with CCV the other day this week in Hong Kong, and they were telling me they have that on a number of like education companies and they are quite bullish on this sector. And that view echoes the the views that I got from a number of other investors in this arena. So basically Chinese people are going to keep spending money on education, especially the subcategory, which is adult education. Because like we are going through tough times in China. Everyone kind of knows that. So people, including myself, we probably would want to spend more money on education because now we are more motivated than teenagers to study. So that's one subcategory. And the other one under education is K-12. It's still going to be K-12 and the language training sector, uh, the language, sorry, language teaching segment, which is like, especially English, like VIP kid. They have this back and forth fundraising round where Tencent initially was rumored to not to invest in them, but now they seem to have invested in them the 1.5 billion US dollars. So I think companies like VIP Kid, they're going to be kind of resilient because we're Chinese people. So we're just going to, even things will turn really bad. The economy will really slow down. We're still going to spend money on our self-education and our children's education. And another sector the GPs are, uh, the VC they're still looking at are, is healthcare. So that's a very natural, I mean, it's a very logical decision for them to make because since China is rapidly aging and the birth rate has been just plunging in the recent years. So that seems to be a natural thing to do. And they are indeed putting more money into this sector, especially for those like AI powered and tech, uh, technology powered online healthcare platforms, mobile healthcare mm. apps like um, Good Doctor and that kind of like surveys, they're still, because the stories sound really good and probably either to, to, to sell in the capital markets. So the arts keep continuing spending money in that, in healthcare sector. And the last one I would say is probably a lead, a less known sector, a less, a sector that has less attention compared with the, the previous two which is enterprise service. Although they haven't joined that much attention, but they're also attracting an increasing amount of money from VCs because everyone is kind of betting on them to be resilient because they believe even when the economy slows down, internet companies and other types of companies, they're still going to need to, they need to like outsource their, their work, right? So like, enterprise service platform, especially software as a service platforms, they are continuing mm. having large amount of traction from both investors and their clients. So that's one sector I think people probably would want to pay more attention going forward because the valuations were saying in this sector, enterprise service sector has already been kind of increasing. So that's basically my impression of where they're going to spend money domestically. So on the, in the, on the external side, some of the funds, as you said, they are, they still have this dry powder they need to spend. So some of them like falls on the Chinese conglomerate. They have a PER region. So they are quite active in India. They said, they basically said they're doing 10 to 12 deals in India every year. That's, I mean, that's quite a lot for Chinese P or VC because they basically they've just started overseas, especially in India. So they are investing heavily in like transportation payments and fintech. They have invested in less transport and the heavy. I can't really pronounce that. D E L H I V R Y. The heavy, right? D E L H I V R Y. Delivery. Delivery. Delivery, like, is the the local local consumer local services delivering things? I mean, that's that's kind of already been. It's pretty well invested. Anyways, so uh, so so yeah, we see. So there's there's a few things that I actually that I think are, are interesting here. One is I, I do find that the, that we were saying about areas like education, healthcare being these kind of go tos, right? That um. 
Uh, I, I had a conversation probably like 2012 with, um, with this, uh, VP at Goldman Sachs. And I was just kind of, he, he's, he's from Guangdong. Um, and I was like, yeah, he's, he's, I, I said to him, I was like, okay, well, you know, if you're going to kind of put money in one sector for the long term, what, in China, what would you do? And he goes, well, you know, you never know what's going to happen with, uh, with regulation and, for example, uh, areas like, like real estate. You never know what's going to happen when it comes to, you know, China and trade. But, uh, there's nothing that's going to stop Chinese people from getting older. So healthcare. <laughs> and I, I, that's something that I kind of keep in mind there. Um, but yeah, when, when it comes to, to these areas like Southeast Asia and India, so we've seen an increase of deals in, in India in particular. But with Southeast Asia too, um, you know, there's been talk of obviously, you know, JD's been doing some things, Tencent's been doing some things, uh, Alibaba's been doing some things. So who, who do you think is, uh, from an investment standpoint or an expansion standpoint, who is really taking advantage of uh, the Southeast Asia and the India markets uh, in particular of these Chinese firms? Um, I would say GGV is one of them. They're quite well versed Mm. in the investment saying they have offices in Singapore. And when I was talking with one of the managing partners earlier this year, they were also talking about their expansion plans in Singapore and uh, in other Southeast Asian countries. So, I feel they're really taking advantage because they have also raised a new US dollar funds this year. And then lots of the partners are also, I think a number of them also come from Southeast Asia. So I would say, I think they're one of the firms that's probably taking quite a lot of advantage in those areas. And so actually that's the firm that can come right top of my head right now. I don't know if you guys have anything to add in this. I think uh, on India, I just got back from Hong Kong and a lot of the people I talked to in Hong Kong, I mean, just just about everybody that mentioned India was very optimistic. I mean, extremely Mm. optimistic about India. And the main reason is because of the recent tax cuts uh, that they're doing there and which seem to be very business-friendly, investor-friendly. And I think we're going to see in the next few years just a massive increase of capital going into India. And if, you know, I don't know what's going to happen with this trade stuff, but with all of the, you know, the dark cloud of uncertainty around China and this recent change in India, I mean, it just seems like an easier way to wait. You know, if you're an allocator in a big, capital, you know, management group or something, you're going to overweight India and you might be underweighting China, you know, given the uncertainty. That's my impression as well. They are just, some of the investors from Singapore were also telling me the thing. they're just, um, Chinese investors just holding the money and they're just trying to look for the best opportunity to, yeah, investing. Yeah. There's still opportunities in China. It's just, you got to, you know, Take your time and and find them. I personally have been finding some interesting ones in the last few weeks, uh, last month or so. So I'm I'm still excited, but I would say that's more for Hong Kong listed Chinese companies. Yeah, it definitely seems like with um with India, the some of these opportunities are uh, with India. The, the thing is with India is that like India's growth story has never been so reliable as China's was, right? So that. That China, you know, we just said, well, it's going to be growing at seven percent every year, you know, and it's it's uh there was it was this safer bet, I think, on that trajectory, right? Because everything was so much more centralized, because you know it has this kind of more reliable infrastructure and things like that. With with, with India, you know, there's they have a lot more of those opportunities still, right? There's there's still a large amount of the population that's still getting online. They they have a lot of those 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 tech capabilities and that tech talent, but at the same time, like like it, if they can't really build their infrastructure, they they or they 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 have all these kind of um, these these uh, like kind of fatal flaws that that China China never really had, you know. Right. The main the main one I, that I've heard people concerns about is that. You know, in India, you have like all these local, regional kind of 
groups that are you know interest groups or political parties and it's all very different also everyone kind of speaks different languages you know china has regional languages but mao sort of pushed everyone to learn one of them which was pretty smart. <laughs> but he doesn't yeah. speak he himself doesn't speak mandarin very well though yeah. So that's <laughs> not around. You know, yeah. <laughs> so I think. Anyways, anyways. Yeah, I think definitely raised a very good point. Some of the investors, Chinese investors, they seem to have been a bit scared by the very complicated cultures in India, especially. Let's be honest, they're quite. They don't. They wouldn't have much problems coming from like either trade unions or that kind of thing, or they wouldn't think people have that many opinions in companies sometimes. So that's my impression, although that's my personal impression that some of them were kind of like confused or intimidated by this kind of like diversity, uh, that, uh, the very diversified culture. So they still mm. definitely take very long time for them to adopt to the local tech thing. Mm. Yeah, for sure. But it, it's, it's an interesting space to watch at all. It, Obviously, that's why we have a podcast on it. But uh, Jane, what what else should we uh, should we be looking at, or what else should uh, what else are you looking into these days that you think are is worth following? Right. So I personally just um, like we just talked briefly about the delisting of Chinese tech company from the U.S. boards, uh, which going to be affect maybe mm-hmm. everyone in this industry. So that's definitely something I was trying to follow up with. I want I wanted to see how the companies are dealing with this situation. Are they really worried about it? And what exactly are they going to deal with it? <laughs> what are they going to do? How mm-hmm. are they going to raise funding? Like we're seeing Pinduoduo and all the other tech companies, they're issuing convertible bonds. And how would that delisting affect this? arena how are the investor going mm. to you know that's i i think um that's going to be a really huge problem how are those overseas investors going to kind of like um escape or just trying to dodge this kind of risk that's arising from this uncertainty so that's one area i'm trying to follow in and then another one is definitely with a slowdown in the investment in, in the investment pace in Chinese companies because lots of them are going to vanish. So how is the Beijing how is the Chinese government trying to deal with this situation is another thing that's interesting worth watching because these every uh, like we read from the news they sent our government officials to more than one hundred Chinese private companies, including Alibaba this week. So my impression mm. is they're getting really nervous about the tech sector. Of course, they are nervous about the whole economy as uh, as well, but they probably are particularly panicking about the possibility of like huge layoffs or just like some other similar types of uncertainties arising from the tech sector. So how is Beijing going to deal with this huge uncertainty going forward? Definitely worth watching. Yeah. Always an interesting space. Well, you just brought up there the, uh, you know, this um, Trump administration. I mean, we could, we should probably see how this plans out it literally just came out today we're recording this on uh you know september 28th so yeah we'll see what happens i mean market's initial response was was oh no sell 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 uh it seems to be so uh we'll see what i i doubt i mean my just gut instinct here tells me that like it's probably not going to be something they can flip a switch and like force everyone delist I think it's going to take some time, so uh, maybe some patience. But obviously, not every investor in U.S. listed companies is also able to be an investor in international equities uh, or has the you know the the willingness to stay up late or wake up early to like check those markets and you know stay on top of them. So yeah, there's probably a, a large subset of investors that are not happy with that there's probably a smaller subset that maybe would be okay with this you know if these companies delist and relist somewhere else potentially hong kong could be a huge beneficiary but anyway thanks for thanks for coming on jane it's been it's been fun yeah it's a nice chat talk soon well thanks again to quartz's jane lee you can follow her on twitter at jane underscore lee nine one one and also, James, we have anything else you want to say? What are you looking forward to? Anything like that? Or just want to let, let them go and, uh, and I guess, uh, talk to our audience next week. I wish everyone a happy national day. We'll just come out later, but today we're recording on, you know, October 1st. So 
happy National Day. Yeah, so happy belated National Day. It's our National Day. It's National Day today, but our listener will hear a few weeks later. Anyways, thanks to Peter. Thanks to John. Thanks to Technode. Yeah. Uh, happy birthday, China. All right. And uh, we'll catch you all next time on the uh, China Tech Investor Podcast. Bye-bye now. Bye-bye.